Let's open our Bibles to 2 Samuel chapter 11. 2 Samuel chapter 11. These last many months I have so thoroughly enjoyed our series on the life of David. One of the great burdens and blessings I have as a pastor, as a minister of the Word of God, is to be able to share with you what the Holy Spirit has been showing me through God's Word as I study each week. But I realize in a, in a great sense that it's impossible for me, humanly, to convey to you in 30 to 40 minutes what takes hours upon hours of prayerful study and how the Lord works in my own heart. And I'm, I'm conscious every Sunday, uh, and I think especially today, that um, I don't have the power to change lives. Only God can. And some of you have lives that need to be desperately changed by God's word today. You're entangled in sin. You're enslaved We use deception to cover our sin. And if only we could grasp the heights that God has for us. The devil has come to steal and to kill and to destroy, but Jesus came that we might have life and have it abundantly. And so we continue our series on the life of David, and we have seen this man who is called a man after God's own heart, display some incredibly noble, excellent qualities. We recall his courage in that great account of David and Goliath. People that don't even read their Bibles all over the world have heard of David and Goliath. Most recently, we have seen the quality of kindness to Mephibosheth when he brought him from that lowly place to the king's table. So many other great accounts of great qualities of this man of God. But today we come to a chapter that I wish I didn't have to preach. I could almost wish it weren't even in the Bible. And that's the account of David and Bathsheba. Here in this chapter in the life of David, We see no courage, no kindness, or any other commendable quality, only corruption. In fact, based on what we've learned so far, we could say that if it weren't God himself telling us this historical account in his word, we would find it impossible to believe that David could do such a thing. Adultery. Murder. This man after God's own heart. But they happened. And this account has been recorded for our benefit. So that we can learn from the life of David the lessons that God has for us today. So let us read this account in its entirety so that we capture the flow of the story. Just a moment ago, we sang, Speak, O Lord. 
So let us listen as God speaks to us through his word. 2 Samuel 11, beginning in verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him in all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained at Jerusalem. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing, and the woman was very beautiful. And David sent and inquired about the woman, and one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David, I am pregnant. So David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. When Uriah came to him, David asked how Joab was doing and how the people were doing and and how the war was going. Then David said to Uriah, go down to your house and wash your feet. And Uriah went out of the king's house and there followed him a present from the king. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of the Lord, of his Lord, and did not go down to his house. When they told David Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house and eat to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next. And David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. In the morning David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, Set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting, and then draw back from him so that he may be struck down and die. And as Joab was besieging the city, he assigned Uriah to the place where he knew there were valiant men. And the men of the city came out and fought with Joab, and some of the servants of David among the people fell. Uriah the Hittite also died. Then Joab sent and told David all the news about the fighting. And he instructed the messenger, When you have finished telling all the news about the fighting to the king, Then if the king's anger rises, and if he says to you, Why did you go so near to the city to fight? Did you not know that they would shoot from the wall? Who killed Abimelech, the son of Jerubasheth? Did not a woman cast an upper millstone on him from the wall, so that he died at Thebes? Why did you go so near the wall? Then you shall say, Your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. So the messenger went and came and told David all that Uriah had sent him to tell. The messenger said to David, The men gained an advantage over us and came out against us in the field, but we drove them back to the entrance of the gate. 
Then the archers shot at your servants from the wall. Some of the king's servants are dead, and your servant Uriah the Hittite is dead also. David said to the messenger, Thus shall you say to Joab, Do not let this matter displease you, for the sword devours now one and now another. Strengthen your attack against the city and overthrow it, and encourage him. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the morning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Let's pray. Lord, your word burns like a fire and is like a mighty hammer that smashes a rock to pieces. I pray today that you would break our hearts, O God. Melt our hard hearts with the heat of your truth and then lovingly mold us into the image of Jesus Christ, your Son. We pray in his holy name. Amen. Many lessons can be drawn from 2 Samuel 11. You'll see some of that this morning. But the primary principle we must not miss from which every other lesson protrudes is this. The godliest saint is still susceptible to the most grievous sins. The godliest saint is still susceptible to the most grievous sins. When reading this account, it's easy for us to look at what David did and think, how could he do such a thing? That's a good question. But here at the start of the sermon, I challenge you to ask that question, not rhetorically, out of disgust, but ask it reflectively with a desire to discover your own susceptibility to sin and to seek the Lord's help in battling it. Let's look first at the context. Verse 1. In the spring of the year, the time when kings go out to battle, David sent Joab and his servants with him and all Israel. And they ravaged the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah. But David remained at Jerusalem. Now you're going to see throughout this account that the narrator employs multiple uses of irony. And he starts right here in verse 1. Because we understand this verse in light of the whole context, we see that while David's armies are out besieging Rabbah, while they are at war, David thinks he is safe at home and has no idea that he's about to be conquered by sin. There's also a note of irony in the word sent. The Bible says here that David stayed home and he sent Joab and his servants and all Israel off to war. Now in the previous chapters, we've looked at that word sent. Because in the two previous chapters, every time David sends, it's always to show kindness. But every time David sends in this chapter, it's not to show kindness, but to serve himself. Previously, just to recap, uh, David uh, sent and brought Mephibosheth from Lodabar to Jerusalem to eat at the king's table, showing him kindness. David sent a delegation to King Hanan of the Ammonites to express his condolences when Hanan's father had died. 
And then David sent more servants to Jericho to care for his men who had been mistreated by Hanan, the Ammonite king. In each situation, David has been sending to show kindness to others, but now in this chapter, every time he sends, it's not to show kindness, but to serve himself. So, instead of going out to battle, David stays home and he sends everyone else. Joab, his servants, all of Israel, the Bible says. While David's men are out risking their lives, he's home resting on his bed, lounging around, taking it easy. Whenever we're doing, whenever we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we become more susceptible to sin. Whenever we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing, we become more susceptible to sin. Now look at verse 2. It happened late one afternoon when David arose from his couch and was walking on the roof of the king's house that he saw from the roof a woman bathing. And the woman was very beautiful. The original Hebrew text is more explicit. It says literally, the woman was beautiful in appearance. Very. Kent Hughes describes the scene and the temptation that overtook David as he gazed upon Bathsheba. Quote, She was young and the flower of life, and the evening shadows made her even more enticing. The king looked at her, and he continued to look. After the first glance, David should have turned the other way, but he did not. His look became a sinful stare, and then a burning, libidinous, sweaty leer. In that moment, David, who had been a man after God's own heart, became a dirty, leering old man. The longer King David leered, the less real God became to him. Not only was his awareness of God diminished, but David lost awareness of who himself was. His holy call, his frailty, and the certain consequences of sin. This is what lust does. It has done it millions of times. God disappears to lust-glazed eyes. End quote. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said that when lust takes control, Satan does not fill us with hatred of God, but with forgetfulness of God. With his men off at war, David thought he was safe, yet he was in grave danger and didn't even know it. When he was attacked by temptation, he was totally unprepared, completely caught off guard, and was quickly conquered by sin. David, the man after God's own heart. A lustful fixation came over him that would not be denied. Let's look next at the crime. Verses 3 and 4. And David sent and inquired about the woman. And one said, Is not this Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam, 
the wife of Uriah the Hittite? So David sent messengers and took her, and she came to him, and he lay with her. Now she had been purifying herself from her uncleanness. Then she returned to her house. You see that word sent again? Twice in this verse, David sends. First, to inquire about the woman. And I suspect his messengers must have known what David was thinking because he said, is not this the wife of Uriah the Hittite? But that didn't stop David because he sent again. First time to inquire her. Second time to take her. No kindness here. No love. Just lust. That is what is driving David at this point. Walter Brugman, in his commentary, describes the sense of what's happening, saying, quote, The action is quick. The verbs rush as the passion of David rushed. He sent. He took. He lay. The royal deed of self-indulgence does not take very long. There is nothing but action. There is no conversation, there's no hint of caring, no affection, no love, only lust. David does not call her by name, he does not even speak to her. At the end of the counter of the encounter, she is only the woman. End quote. Verse five. And the woman conceived, and she sent and told David. I am pregnant. Loaded with irony. He sent for her, now she sends to him. And already we can begin to see the consequences of David's sin. This is going to be a big deal, a big mess that he's going to have to deal with. The text is loaded with irony. If we look at what Bathsheba was doing when David saw her washing and then what happens when he brings her to himself, we see that Bathsheba's careful observance of the ceremonial law, uh, purifying herself after her period, is followed by a blatant transgression of the moral law as David commits adultery with her. Furthermore, as I said, after David sent for Bathsheba, and lay with her, and she goes back to her house, Bathsheba sent and told David, I am pregnant. A lot of irony there. And then, while David talks actually quite a bit in this chapter, you might have picked this up, Bathsheba's lines are limited to just three words. I am pregnant. Just two words in the Hebrew. The narrator doesn't clarify whether Bathsheba was baiting David. Or whether she considered a fling with the king an honor. A lot of people speculate about that. But the Bible simply doesn't tell us. The spotlight is on David. The emphasis is on David. And that is where our attention needs to be. Having committed adultery, David now tries to cover up his sin instead of confessing it. Her words, I am pregnant, led to a chain of cover-up schemes on the part of David. Let's look at the cover-up. Plan A appears in verses 6 to 11. Verse 6 says, So 
Upon hearing Bathsheba's report, I am pregnant, David sent word to Joab, send me Uriah the Hittite. And Joab sent Uriah to David. There's that word sent or sent again. Now three times in a single verse. David is using, or shall we say, abusing his power to try to control the situation. When Uriah comes to David, David asks, How's Joab? How are the people doing? How's the war going? More irony. Remember in the previous chapter, when David sent a delegation to King Hanan to express his condolences on the loss of Hanan's father, The Ammonites were convinced that David's kindness was a ruse, right? Remember that? But they were wrong. But in this case, David's kindness really is a ruse. He doesn't care how Joab is doing. He doesn't care how the people is doing. He doesn't care at this point how the war is going. He's simply trying to cover his sin with the cloak of kindness. After David asks how everybody is doing, he says to Uriah, Go down to your house and wash your feet. That's probably a veiled euphemism for sexual relations with your wife. He's he's essentially saying, take the night off. You've come a long way. Enjoy the comforts of home. Have sex with your wife. Now, we didn't say those words explicitly, but that's certainly what he was implying. It's interesting in verse 4, after David lay with Bathsheba, It says that she returned to her house. And now he tells Uriah, go down to your house. That is where Bathsheba is. And two and two equals four. You can figure out the rest yourself. It's also interesting when he tells him to wash your feet. The word for wash is the same Hebrew word for bathe in verse two. So what what David saw Bathsheba doing which led to his act of sex with her, he now wants Uriah to do, to wash himself and lie with his wife. But David's ploy doesn't work. I have this actually as a footnote, but I think I'm going to share it with you. In verse 9, it begins by saying, but Uriah slept at the door of the king's house. But the original Hebrew says, And Uriah lay. And so the impression, it's almost like the narrator wants us to think that David's ploy is going to work. Go down to your house and he's hoping he'll lay with his wife. And Uriah lay, not with Bathsheba, but he slept with David's servants. But Uriah slept at the door of the king's house with all the servants of his Lord and did not go down to his house. When they told David, Uriah did not go down to his house, David said to Uriah, Have you not come from a journey? Why did you not go down to your house? Uriah said to David, The ark in Israel and Judah dwell in booths, and my lord Joab and the servants of my lord are camping in the open field. Shall I then go to my house to eat and to drink and to lie with my wife? As you live and as your soul lives, I will not do this thing. This is the only time Uriah speaks. And his words should have pierced David's heart. Bill Arnold writes, quote, 
The great irony of our text is that this foreign convert is more righteous than the Israelite king. Uriah the Hittite, he's actually called that seven times in the broader context. Uriah the Hittite is a man of such character that he adamantly refuses to compromise his commitments to Yahweh's war against Ammon or to his fellow soldiers. And yet King David, the anointed one of Yahweh, has abused his God-given power and attempts to manipulate a faithful and righteous servant in a desperate scam to save himself. End quote. Repentance? No. When the ploy doesn't work, now it's time for plan B. Verses 12 to 13. Then David said to Uriah, Remain here today also, and tomorrow I will send you back. So Uriah remained in Jerusalem that day and the next, and David invited him, and he ate in his presence and drank, so that he made him drunk. He, David, made him, Uriah, drunk. And in the evening he went out to lie on his couch with the servants of his Lord, but he did not go down to his house. plan B didn't work either. I even got him drunk and he still didn't go down to his house. It's been well said that at this time in David's life, Uriah was a better man drunk than David was sober. Still no repentance. Plan C. Verse 14. In the morning, David wrote a letter to Joab and sent it by the hand of Uriah. In the letter he wrote, set Uriah in the forefront of the hardest fighting and then draw back from him that he may be struck down and die. Once again, David sends. This time, he sends Uriah's death warrant by his own hand knowing that Uriah is too trustworthy, is so trustworthy, he will not open the sealed letter. Because David trusts Uriah so much, he trusts him to deliver unopened his own death warrant to the commander Joab. How cruel is that? But that's how sin works when we try to cover it up. Instead of confessing it and forsaking it, it only leads to more sin. It always leads to more sin. Not only that, but listen, each new step of deceit becomes easier and easier because our heart is becoming harder and harder. The more calloused our heart grows due to unconfessed sin, the easier and easier it is to commit sin. David's heart is so hardened by this point that when the messenger from Joab tells him after the deed is done that the enemy gained an advantage over the men of Israel and some died, including Uriah, David says, oh well, you win some, you lose some. Some get killed by the sword today. Another one gets killed by the sword tomorrow. Just tell Joab to redouble his efforts, assault the city, and take it. Encourage him. Now remember who's saying this. David, 
the man whose conscience had struck him when he cut off a tiny corner of the king's robe now trivializes the death of his own soldiers that he himself had caused in an attempt to conceal his sin. This takes us to the final part, the commentary. Verses 26 and 27. When the wife of Uriah heard that Uriah, her husband, was dead. Can we just stop there? Notice the emphasis the narrators make. It's not just Bathsheba hears that Uriah is dead. He's emphasizing their marital relationship. When the wife of Uriah heard that her husband, Uriah her husband, was dead, she lamented over her husband. And when the mourning was over, David sent and brought her to his house, and she became his wife, and bore him a son. But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. This is the last time that David sends. Having achieved his plan, he makes his final move. Come to think of it, maybe plan C was the best plan after all. Because now, Not only is my sin covered, but with Uriah out of the way, I can have Bathsheba all to myself. And since the cover-up so quickly followed the crime, no one will question the timing of Bathsheba's pregnancy. Now David can breathe easy. Now he's got everything under control. Or so he thinks. From David's perspective, this is the end of the matter. It's finally over. But from God's perspective, the ordeal is far from over. The text starts out with David and Bathsheba, but it ends with David and God. David sent for Bathsheba, thinking that he had concealed his sin, But what do we read in the very next verse? Chapter 12, verse 1. And the Lord sent Nathan to David. See, David is sending the whole time because as king, he thinks he's in control. But he has forgotten that there is a king above him who is really in control. And now God sends Nathan, the prophet, to David to confront David about his sin and tell David the consequences that will now flow from it. We'll look at that next week as we explore chapter 12. But God does this because the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. That's the divine commentary on the account of 2 Samuel 11. The text literally says, For the thing that David had done was evil in the sight of the Lord. Until now, the narrator has detailed every step of the story as if God was nowhere around. As if God really wasn't involved at all. But it only serves to accentuate this powerful statement at the very, very end of the chapter. 
But the thing that David had done displeased the Lord. The thing that David had done was evil in the sight of God. And that goes to show that the silence of God does not indicate the absence of God. When we think that we sin and initially it seems all is well, no consequences from it, we think we're good to go. But we forget that God has been there all along observing every move and will deal with us accordingly. Well, like I said, we'll continue this account next week in chapter 12 where David is confronted with his sin and must face the consequences of it. But in chapter 11, remember I said there was one primary principle, right? That the godliest saints are still susceptible to the most grievous sins. But from that principle, there's also these other lessons we learn that that jut out from that primary principle. And as I walk through 2 Samuel 11, while I'm sure that there are probably dozens of lessons to be learned, there are five realities that stuck out to me that I pray that you will consider as we meditate on this text, even leaving the service today. Five realities to consider as we contemplate this text. Number one, our inclination toward laxity. Our own inclination toward laxity. Like David, we can become lazy. We can become lax in our spiritual responsibilities. We stop fighting the good fight of faith. We stop waging a good warfare. We stop being good soldiers of Jesus Christ. We stop pressing on for the prize and instead we begin to rest on our laurels. We look at how far we've come. All the things that God has accomplished in our life, but now we kind of see them as our accomplishments. Everything that we've done for the Lord. All the kindnesses that we have shown for other people. All the battles that we have won through our courage. Now it's time for some other people to do it. It's time for us to take things a little easy. Scripture warns against laziness. The whole book of Hebrews is dedicated to this theme. Warning us against spiritual sluggishness. I was talking to my wife Ruthie about this a couple days ago. Not addressing her spiritual sluggishness, but but talking about this tendency in our lives if we're not careful and... uh, She gave a good illustration. She said, just like a grocery cart with a bad wheel always pulls to a side, we're naturally prone to laxity. We will all drift naturally unless we're determined not to. That is the natural drift to which we are all prone. We must set our hearts not to do that by fixing our eyes on the Lord. In his inaugural address, President John F. Kennedy's historic words, ask not what your country can do for you, but ask what you can do for your country, could also be applied to the church. Let me ask you for reflection. Have you grown lax in your Christian life? Do you expect other people to serve you instead of looking for ways to serve them? Have you 
developed a sense of entitlement that in light of all you have done, now it's time for other people to start serving you. Do you look at your accomplishments and say, well, I'm in a stage of life where I ought to be taking things more easy. Those are some of the telltale signs that you are becoming lax in your Christian walk. Beware, because that is the context, that is the soil in which the temptation grew and sprung up in David's life. The second reality we need to consider is our obsession with sex. (laughs) It's been well said that an idle mind is the devil's playground. And that is certainly true when it comes to sex. Friends, do we really need to convince ourselves about this? One in five mobile searches are for pornography. At least one in four teenagers are involved in sexting. By the time they're 20 years old, 77% of individuals have had sex, 75% before marriage. These are people that are willing to admit it. In his book, Strange New World, Carl Truman states, quote, The idea that human flourishing is virtually synonymous with sexual fulfillment is a commonplace, in fact, virtually an intuition of modern Western culture. The fulfilled life is the sexually fulfilled life. End quote. And yet as the pornography Industry continues to grow with each new advance of technology. By the way, they're saying that virtual reality pornography by 2025 will be a $1 billion business. Second only behind the video game industry and NFL-related content. As pornography industry grows with each new advance in technology, and as the homosexual and transsexual and transgender subculture continues to expand, our culture is getting further sucked into the same ancient lie that seduced David. Again, Bill Arnold writes, quote, David surrenders impulsively to his most basic instincts, which lead him down a path that grows darker with each step. Rather than reaching his highest level of personal fulfillment, David discovers the darkness of his own soul. End quote. Likewise, our obsession with sex will lead only to self-destruction. And that's one more reason why 2 Samuel 11 is as pertinent and necessary today as ever before in the history of humanity. Third reality, our abuse of power. Our abuse of power. This is all over this text. I wish we had time to maybe have a whole sermon series on this. But abuse of power, whether we have a little power or whether we have a lot of power, abuse is still abuse, takes on many forms. It can be physical, sexual, emotional, financial, psychological. We talk about playing mind games. We talk about manipulative methods. We all tend to use power in our interpersonal relationships to gain advantage over other people. We can even try to manipulate God. And yet our 
greedy attempts to control and to manipulate in order to get actually only leads to further pain and loss. And this tragic episode in David's life teaches us to guard our relationships with other people carefully and always use whatever power God has given us to look for ways to serve people rather than to dominate them, to manipulate them, to be served by them. Fourth reality is our accountability to God. David thought that he had concealed his sin, but God saw everything and dealt with David accordingly. We'll see this next week. Proverbs 15.3 says, The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. Pastor Mike and I didn't coordinate notes, but I picked up on it when he said this in his pastoral prayer earlier in our service, knowing this verse would come into play at the conclusion of the sermon. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on the evil and the good. I didn't have it in my sermon notes, but I thought of years ago, one of our favorite movies we watched as a family when our kids were young was uh, Aladdin. And I remember the genie talking to Aladdin, and he said, you know, he comes out of the bottle and he says to Aladdin, all the cosmic powers of the universe in a little bitty space. I thought, that's our cell phone. That's our cell phone. We think we're in control. We think we have the power. Nobody's going to see what I'm looking at. I'll just enter my passcode. My wife doesn't know it. Security, private searches, right? That's our equivalent of abuse of power, the power of technology to conceal my sin. But the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the evil and the good. Moses told the people of Israel, be sure your sin will find you out. It occurred to me that David would have known this scripture. And yet somehow, in his self-deception, David thought that he would be immune to the consequences of sin. After all, I'm the anointed one of God. I'm the king of Israel. The Lord's chosen one. David thought that he would be the exception, that he would get away with his sin. But the nature of sin is that whether or not other people discover your sin, your sin will always discover you. Your sin will always find you out. Which simply means to say there is no way that we can avoid the consequences of sin. A lot of times we'll face some of those consequences in this life, but if not this life, certainly after this life. Scripture says, For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each one, every person, may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. And that takes us to the fifth and final reality we must lay hold of, and that is our hope in Jesus Christ. Our hope in Jesus Christ. David was a man after God's own heart. 
David was the gold standard by which every other king in Israel after him would be measured. And yet, even as Israel's greatest king, David fell greatly. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. But a thousand years later, the Lord God looked on David's greater descendant, the Lord Jesus Christ, and declared, This is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. See the contrast? What David did was evil in the sight of God. The thing that David had done displeased the Lord. Ah, but this is my beloved son. With him I am well pleased. Peter, who was an eyewitness of Jesus' life, testified in his first epistle, chapter 2, verse 22, he never sinned nor deceived anyone. He never sinned nor deceived anyone. David did both. And that's why Christ alone is the perfect king. He saved us by living a perfect life for us. By taking the punishment that we rightfully deserve because of our sins, because of our deceptions, because of our attempts to cover it up, because of our obsessions and and our abuse of power to try to control things and manipulate people and deceive others. Jesus took the punishment that we deserve for all those things And then he rose victoriously from the grave, proving that his sacrifice is sufficient to truly cover, to atone for the very worst of sins. For those who believe in him, he has cast our sins behind his back, Scripture says. He has thrown them into the depths of the sea. He has separated them as far as the east is from the west. How far is the east from the west? Infinity, unending. That's how far God has separated our sins for those who trust in His Son. And this is good news for us, is it not? It means that we can come to God as we are with all of our sins, all of our deceit, all of our obsessions, all of our abuse of power, all of our manipulative tactics, all of our ingratitude, all of our sense of entitlement, all of our horrific attitudes, all of our guilt, all of our shame, and be fully forgiven by the God who not only sees all, but mercifully saves all who come to him through faith in Christ. Let's pray. Lord, we've but scratched the surface of this sobering text. Yet we trust your Holy Spirit to use your word to sanctify your people and to save those who are not yet your people, but today will trust in Christ to save them from their sins. Because faith comes from hearing and hearing from the word of Christ. We thank you, God, that you not only see everything, but that you save everyone who calls on the name of the Lord. We thank you, Jesus, that as 
the perfect king who would have every right to condemn us, you invite us to come as we are. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, weighed down with guilt, weighed down with our load of sin. Lord Jesus, we can come to you, for you tell us that you are gentle, you are loving, you are forgiving, that your yoke is easy and your burden is light. I pray that we would lay our burdens at the foot of the cross and receive you as our forgiving king who loved us so much that you gave yourself for us. In Jesus' name, amen.